The following is a presentation of Omega Institute for Holistic Studies, Awakening the Best in the Human Spirit. Hmm. Well, Elizabeth, thank you for that very sweet introduction and just all deep well wishes for healing for your sister. I didn't call my first book Full Catastrophe Living for Nothing. I mean, a lot of people do wind up feeling kind of about life that it's, if it's not one thing, it's another. And sometimes we feel imprisoned as if, you know, we've been dealt a hand that we didn't ask for. And that someone must have gotten it wrong. I mean, this was not supposed to happen this way. And of course, if you've gotten off scot-free for a while, there's the underlying sense that... (laughs) It's not going to be this way forever. Migrating to South Florida is certainly a good idea if you live in the, you know, tundra of the north, except that, um, as Harville was pointing out last night, uh, well, there's no snow where I come from, and it's mid-January. So, um, I'd like to talk this morning about being ageless, whatever that means, growing old, which has a certain kind of inevitability to it, but at the same time, if one puts the emphasis on the growing, then it could be, all puns intended, the adventure of a lifetime. Otherwise, it winds up being in some way a life sentence. And as you heard, I work some in the past, worked quite a bit with people in prison. And um, it's interesting because when, you know, your body is locked up for things that you've done in the past... It's not the end of life. They've got your body, but they don't necessarily have to have your mind. But if your mind is what got you into prison in the first place, then you've got a lot of work to do in order to rehabilitate yourself, which means, by the way, the deep root meaning of that is to learn to live inside again not just to re-enable yourself, but to learn to live inside again. And that again kind of points to the fact that we used to know, but we forgot. And when did we forget? Someplace early on along the way. It's easy to drift out of touch with what's deepest and best and most wholesome and healthiest and most luminous and beautiful about ourselves. And the outer conditions don't necessarily help us to maintain our luminosity and well-being across the lifespan. Have you noticed? And we can often say to ourselves, well, if only conditions were different, I'd be like, so great, you know. Maybe I'd even be kind to people if I were the Dalai Lama (laughs) or Mother Teresa or some other saint. Yeah, of course, I could get with that program. But what the real work of uh, this journey might be is waking up to it while we have the chance. And I think you'll agree with me 
especially if you're over 50 or 60 or 70, this realization gets just stronger the older we get, is that the whole thing goes by like that. Have you noticed? Can you feel it? Yeah. At the same time, you know, and they say this in prison, they say, well, we're all doing time. You know, we're all doing time on this planet. And the metaphor of being imprisoned, I mean, we can be imprisoned on our own minds even if they don't catch us. (laughs) And lock us up. We don't need other people to lock us up. We do that really well ourselves. We could zone along on autopilot for 20 or 30 or 40 years locked in a prison of our own fabrication and blame everybody else outside circumstances. Well, it was this, it was that, it was the other. And lose touch with the fecundity of a human life lived in awareness, which gives us, it's like, back... Our moments. Now, one of the things about aging and graceful aging or growing older is that, again, you may have noticed this, like there's kind of a feeling on the one hand that time is running out and we never have enough of it. Hmm? Or we've got way too much and then we kill it. I have to kill some time in between important things in my life. Oh, that's good. (laughs) And we got, we're geniuses at killing time. At distracting ourselves, diverting any kind of potential for being in touch. Just diverting it like we divert the Mississippi River. Whoops. And then 30 years later, wake up and realize, whoa, I didn't have to do that. I I got it all wrong. But, and you don't need to feel guilty about those 30 years. We've all done it. It's part of the human condition. But the question is, well, when are we actually going to live our lives as if it mattered? Actually show up for them in our fullness. And reconcile ourselves, so to speak, if this is in some sense a learning how to live inside again. Reconcile ourselves with how things actually are. Rather than continually being in some sense resentful or contracted because it's not the way I wanted it to be. And the older we get, of course, it's like, you know, you can say, as I was suggesting, I didn't sign up for this. I've done yoga for 40 years. I, I mean, my hip shouldn't be pro- problematic. What's going on here? <laughs> you know, because we actually live in constructs rather than in reality. We're fabricating the reality moment by moment. That's what cognitive science is all about. No one knows how this three pounds of meat inside the skull does that that we actually are continually creating our own reality and every single one of us is in a slightly different room right now. (laughs) Seeing me in a slightly different way, fabricating a story of me and maybe where this talk is going and how it relates to you. And if you're not careful, you could miss the talk. (laughs) Seriously, even I could miss the talk. And while we're laughing, I mean, what I'm talking about is far too serious to take that seriously. Okay, because then we can get like really self-righteous about now I'm going to take hold of my life. Uh-oh, watch out, everybody. You know, grandma started meditating. <laughs> Doing yoga with Lilia Folas. Whoa. And it's fantastic because, you see, each moment... In the first, the first chapter of Full Catastrophe Living is called 
you only have moments to live. It's actually true. It's a truism. We only have moments to live. But we think we're going to like, everybody else is going to die, but we're kind of like, with the, the exception, you know, it's not going to happen. And we so like, don't consider it in any kind of serious way. The Tibetans would say, make love with the fact. Now that this isn't forever. You heard Andy say last night, if you were here for that talk, uh, that marvelous talk, that, uh, you know, there's a whole rising tide of anti-aging energies in this world. Uh, And in fact, you know, as a molecular biologist, I actually, uh, in the old days, uh, trained um, in molecular biology, I happened to go to a uh, symposium a couple of years ago, a number of years ago, uh, on the molecular biology of aging. And I was just astonished with the way they were talking about aging and dying, as if because they were honing in on what, what we call the senescence genes that regulate the sort of degradation of processes in cells and can actually extend the lifespan of yeast or even animals. I mean, and one way you do that is to just cut their caloric input in half, you know, calorie restriction. So you live twice as long, but it feels like you're living a hundred times longer because, you know, it's no fat <laughs> or no juice or no McDonald's. Or... But um, they actually speak about um, aging as if it's like a disease, some kind of cosmic mistake on the part of nature. And really feel like they're going to beat it, hopefully, in this generation because there's a good deal of self-interest in, like, well, if we're going to have immortality, uh, it better be before I die rather than after I die because <laughs> I, want, I have a certain self-interest in this. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just read you an, an example of this from the Boston Globe not two weeks ago, but uh, a month ago. Um, This is somebody who uh, is one of the top aging researchers in the country, molecular biologist, and he says, aging is the worst thing that has ever been put upon humanity. (laughs) This person is a professor at Harvard Medical School. And and you have to understand where he's coming from because I can feel that. I mean, in some way, you know, yeah, it's too bad, isn't it? As if it's just put upon humanity. Not, nothing else dies, you know, it's just, or ages. It's just like, how could it be us? When I was three years old, I was horrified by the idea that my grandparents would die, and then my parents would die, and then one day I would die. Okay. Now, it may be, and a lot of people talk about this, including... Um, um, Ray Kurzweil, who wrote a book called The Age of Spiritual Machines. He's one of these, you know, um, artificial intelligence geniuses uh, who makes the arguments in that book and then a book called, there's a book that's this thick, but that's called um, The Singularity is Near, that everything in evolution is pointing to the human mind being able to actually manipulate matter in such a way that it will be able to generate thinking machines that think a lot faster than we do. Your calculator calculates a lot faster than you do, and that's like trivial, but if you took that back to your grandparents' generation when they were children, it would have been magic. No one would understand how a little thing could actually give you the square roots of any number you put in just with the push of a button. Well, it's not that big a leap to actually make the argument that with time you could actually develop algorithms, and they've already done this, that actually where the computer actually learns how to improve on itself. And then the question is, well, when does it become feeling? Sentient because we call ourselves sentient beings. And the Buddhists speak about saving all beings and talk about sentient beings. That is, beings that can be in touch. Sentience means to taste or to know. 
So again, the senses, to be able to actually be in touch. Sentient beings. And so, there's a huge mystery to being human because we are aware that it's not forever. Now, that may turn out to be a tremendous gift because if there's a kind of naturalness or lawfulness to the universe, why should the human ego decide that it's not going to play by any of these rules because we can do cloning and molecular genetics and, uh, and um, uh, nanotechnology and uh, solid-state physics and so forth. And we can create a reality that's uh, separate from the laws of nature. That sounds a little bit scary to me. And, and Andy pointed out last night that, you know, you start fooling around with those senescence genes and they may actually trigger tremendous uh, unanticipated repercussions in terms of sensitivity to cancer, uh, all sorts of different dysregulations within the cell. This is not something where you, it's like the sorcerer's apprentice. You know, you think, oh, I can do that. And then you just start playing with the laws of nature and it doesn't always work out that way. At least, you know, so maybe we are only one or two generations away from much, much longer life or, much, or even immortality. Maybe they're right, okay? How's that going to help us right now? All generations on this planet have had to come to terms with our mortality. And there's something about it that's tremendously energizing. The fact that it is not forever actually can help us um, see beneath the surface of things and ask deep questions and learn to inhabit and rehabilitate our lives as if it was meaningful. And while we all want more moments to live, how about living the moments that we have? And gracefully, so that it's not always with a certain kind of resentment because it's not working out the way it was supposed to the way I envisaged it. Think back for one moment, just for fun. Do you remember when you were little, maybe before you went to college and you were planning your college courses, if you did go to college, or, or you just had some kind of idea about who you would marry and what your children would look like, even if you didn't know who that was, but you, know, you had some kind of fantasy about it. Did anybody ever do that when you were younger? Raise your hands. I want to just feel... <clears throat> Because we do project into the future like the image of and how it will be and how it will turn out. Okay, now drop that for a moment. And if you can, entertain the notion, recognize the fact that it's already turned out. This is it. The you that showed up today for this lecture is the future of those fantasies. And maybe there's some kind of dissonance, like it didn't turn out the way you hoped. Who hoped? Who was creating these fantasies and fictions in the first place? We don't even know who we are, and yet we're terrified of dying or aging. I think it's not actually true that we're terrified of dying. What I think is that we're terrified of living. Okay? And we won't live. I'll take my football and go home unless we play by my rules. We won't live unless we get a guarantee that it'll work out okay. Then I'll be willing to live. Well, lots of luck. But if we were to actually learn to drop in on ourselves, to have a certain degree of passion for this moment and to enliven it, embody our, um, our, our commitment to living life as if it really mattered, no matter how it is, and drop a lot of the concepts about how it should be or how it is, including even the concept of age. Children don't know what age they are. I mean, really? I mean, they don't spend, I'm five years old, you know? Of course they do, and they, you know, because they entrained into that. But, but, but actually, you know, have you ever, like, just forgotten your age and just sort of danced? 
You know, for one moment you were ageless. You were even nameless because the name carries a lot of stuff with it. Oh, yeah, there goes John Kabat-Zinn. Oh, my God. You know, how much baggage? <laughs> or Deepak Chopra or who, Andy Weil or Harville Hendricks or, you know, je ne sais quoi, you know, <laughs> me. It's, it, it's like it, it carries a lot of baggage. Uh, the story of me and where it's going and how much I have to, you know, get done in this lifetime. And I'm way behind schedule. <laughs> not only that, not only that, but uh, they don't appreciate me enough. <laughs> I mean, they, they have no idea that I am actually the center of the universe. Which is truer than we think. We may be laughing about it, but, you know, a lot of times... That, that's why what Harville said last night is true. I mean, you know, you think you're living with another person? Nonsense. <laughs> you're not living with another person. You're living with that, that universe that's part of your universe, that lives with you. Where the emphasis is on underlined you, me. The story of me. It's like, what could be more interesting full-screen technicolor and digital sound, the story of me and where I'm going. Only when you look at it deeply, you have no idea. <laughs> Except that maybe it, in the dark of night when, when there's some ache here or there or you look in the mirror and you don't know where your Botox is and, <laughs> and you wonder what, what, how it came to be. that there's a sense of uh, despair. A sense of, oh my God. Instead of a sense of, yes, how beautiful. Have you ever seen the Curtis photographs of the Plains Indians? The older those women got, the more beautiful they look. The more lines on their faces, the more, it's like, you know, you could jump out of the page at you. And they were embodied. They practiced yoga, of course. I mean, they're called Indians. <laughs> I don't know where this stuff is coming from. But uh, the yoga that they practiced was what we'd call life. Okay, the, the yoga that they practice is what we call life. Showing up for life, living life fully. And then the whole world for them was alive. You know, not just the trees, not just the grasses, not just the buffalo, but the mountains, the, the wind, the earth. And with that kind of respect, with the recognition of that relationality, the mother, earth, you wouldn't harm her. And you'd be aware of the consequences of your actions. This is something that, like, of course, we call traditional people. I mean, often anthropologists would refer to them in the old days before the era of political correctness as primitive. We're the primitives. We're the underdeveloped country. We insist on fabricating stories about reality and then imprinting them on the way things are, on the universe, on the world. And sometimes it looks like Iraq, where once you go in there with a certain mind state and you break it, you, there's no f fixing it. There's no success. There's no possibility like that. Uh, never mind Iraq. What about the environment? What if... What if you know, what 99.9% of all the planetary and weather scientists are saying is true in that, uh, you know, within 10 years, that 27% of the ocean could be like 87% of the ocean or, or the sea level, you know, never mind say goodbye to the polar bears, but never mind the, the, the sea level. See all those nice homes out there with their boats? They're going to need those boats. But... They won't let you on. 
So what is being suggested here is that it, it might be good while we, if we wake up to the life that's ours to live while we have the chance and not just get stuck in the notion that, well, it's not good enough, I don't like it, my body is on the wane, so to speak. You know, well, welcome to the club. What, what, what else is new? Okay? But interesting things about the body, and this is something we've been learning in medicine over the past uh, 30 years, is that uh, the more you work with it, the more it works with you. The physical therapist said this wonderful thing, if you don't use it, you lose it. Hmm? And I like to append that by saying, in terms of aging at least, if you do use it, you lose it too, but just slower. And that slower might make all the difference. And if you were showing up for your moments, even though you're going to die at some point. The real question is, can you live? Uh, I know there are people here, <clears throat> uh, Brian Weiss is an old acquaintance, friend of mine, uh, who talk about uh, relating to the dead. Uh, in mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is the kind of work that uh, I do, uh, we have a very poor track record with the dead. <laughs> we're, we're, we're much more effective with the living and much more interested in the question, is there life before death? <laughs> and it isn't going to be in some future, it's not going to be in some future. It's already here now, and the future is not guaranteed. And we are living in that future, as I was suggesting, that the, we, the present moment is the future of all the moments that came before. And what, in some sense, impedes us from dropping in, from living inside again with full dimensionality and freedom is thinking. Our thinking, and there's nothing more beautiful than thought. You heard I trained at MIT with a Nobel laureate. I mean, it's all about thinking. But there's something else that's equally important, and that is sentience. Sentience is not about thinking. It's related to thinking, but sentience is a kind of knowing that, like, women may understand this better than men. It's just, like, intuitive. It's like you just know. You walk into a space, you know, I don't want to live here. You're looking at some new house that you might move into. You walk in. You don't even have to look around at where's the master bedroom. You just walk in and say, nope. Before thinking. We haven't learned to trust that. Where do you get that? It's not taught in kindergarten, nursery school, first grade. Like cultivating these, this non-conceptual knowing it's so camouflaged, but it's such a profound element of our humanity. It's called, you know what it's called? It's called awareness. It's called awareness. And how do you cultivate it? You cultivate it by paying attention. You don't actually cultivate awareness. Awareness is. But if you start paying attention, then you, you get more in touch with what is actually going on rather than the filtered stories that you, the lenses that you use, that we all use to say, yeah, I'm over the hill. That's a thought. I'm in pain. Even I'm in pain. Pain is a thought. I'm not denying the actuality of pain, but as long as you think that it's pain, you're stuck with this concept. As long as you think you're old, you're stuck with this concept. You say, well, I can prove it. I'm 93 years old. Yeah, okay, but it's still a thought. When I, my mother is 92, and I spend a lot of time with her. She lives 15 minutes away from, from me, and uh, she, she's got, you know, and I often call her up before I come over and say, how's it going, Mom? And, and she says, you don't want to know. <laughs> and she's right. I just, after a while, I don't. <laughs> But I knew, do know that when I come over, it goes a lot better. She's not complaining as much. Because you know? there's a certain isolation, the so, sort of social, the relationality can break down if we're not careful, including the relationality with ourselves. What Harville Hendricks was talking about with the relationship is true, but there's like deep, deep elements of relationality that have to do with me, myself, and I. Only not just the personal pronouns, but what they point to, what's underneath them. Who are we when we ask, what am I? 
and then we don't fill it up with our CV, our repertoire, or our age, or our accomplishments, or our failures, but just what Socrates said. Because Socrates was known for going around saying, know thyself. So one of his smart-ass students once said to him, Socrates, you go around saying, know thyself, but do you know yourself? And he said, no. <laughs> and a quizzical look passed across the student's face. I, I wasn't there, actually. Uh, but <laughs> just in the spirit of full disclosure. But he wasn't finished. He wasn't finished. He then said, but I understand something about this not knowing. You see, in a sense, we're so conceptualized that we can't just be with the not knowing. All of science is based on not knowing. You go as far as you know, and then you have to hold the not knowing. And if you think too much, at a certain point, you just get a headache. Breakthroughs in science are often insights that come unbidden when you're willing to just stand at this point of highest tension of not knowing not knowing. Like the Zen archer. You know, like you spend three years just learning how to draw back the bow. You don't even put an arrow in. But finally, the arrow learns to release itself. Insight. An aha experience. A seeing of a connectedness that was here all the time. Right under our noses, so to speak. Well, where's the first place to relate? How about with ourselves? How about with our body? And not just from here up, you know. Yeah, we get stuck in the head and don't even relate to the body. Better left. Oh, there's a wonderful song that I heard not long ago. Do you know who Leonard Cohen is? (laughs) Well, Leonard Cohen is, you know, used to be young and now he's old. (laughs) Like the rest of us. And he has this beautiful song called the, The Tower of Song. Tower of Song. And the first lines go like this, if I can remember it correctly. Well, my friends are gone. Well, my friends are gone, and my hair is gray. I ache in the places where I used to play. (laughs) And I'm crazy for love, but I'm not coming on. I'm just paying my rent in the Tower of Song. So when you get poets of this stature, Bono, they did a movie for celebrating his birthday, and maybe some of you saw it. It's called called, uh, I'm Your Man. And Bono is interviewed a lot, and and so is Edge. You know, people, uh, U2, uh, the band U2. And and Bono says at one point in this movie... uh, he discards stuff. He's patient. He discards, he, he will work 10 years on a song. He, will, he discards stuff that's way above anything we could ever produce. That's a pretty high compliment coming from somebody like Bono. My friends are gone and my hair is gray. I ache in the places where I used to play. And I'm crazy for love. See, it's okay to ache in the places where you used to play and still play, just differently. Uh, And in fact, grow into something so beautiful that it makes what came before look like uh, undeveloped or underdeveloped. And before I finish this talk or begin the talk, I want to... um, I want to actually recommend a couple of books to you because I'm not going to be able to drop into this. We'll do more in the workshop this afternoon, but to drop into this in the feeling, at the feeling level in the way it really deserves. So one book that I want to recommend to you, which curiously they always stock in the Omega bookstore when I talk, but now on the one time we have a conference on aging they haven't stocked, is called Old Age by a woman named Helen Luke. When I read this book, I called her up. I never do that. But I called up the author. I tracked her down. She lived on a farm in southern Michigan. She was like 93 or 94 years old at the time. I don't know. So, but, and I said to her, I, I, I cannot believe this book. I mean, it's so unbelievable. And you know what it is? It's, if she's a Jungian psychologist, 
she since died. I was planning to visit her, and then she died between the time we talked and the time I got to be able to visit. But didn't matter, uh, at least to me. <laughs> I, more than that, I, I don't know. Um, but she takes uh, the Odyssey, King Lear, The Tempest. Have you heard of King Lear? Written by a fellow named uh, Shakespeare. Um, okay, I'm just checking because, you know, they say sometimes most Americans can't locate this Pacific Ocean on a map. You know what I'm saying? Uh, not the ones that come to Omega, but, but I'm pointing out, you know, if you look at the educational level of Americans versus people in other countries, like, we're not exactly in the, you know, top ten. So, King Lear. Let me recommend you reread King Lear. Uh, if you haven't read it in the past 50 years, you know, uh, reread King Lear. It's, it's one of the most remarkable uh, explorations of liberation in aging, out of ignorance, stupidity, greed, hatred, delusion. I mean, it's just extraordinary how Shakespeare does this time and time again. I don't know. But Helen Luke, okay, so there's, there's the Odyssey, King Lear, uh, The Tempest, also by Shakespeare, and Little Gidding, which is the fourth of T.S. Eliot's four quartets. And she unpacks them in a way that is really remarkable all around the question of what it means to grow into ourselves with age, to grow older, as opposed to falling into aging. Okay? What's the difference? Everything. What's the factor that makes the difference? Well, you could call it awareness. You could call it embodiment. You could call it enlivening. You could call it love. Loving what is. Loving the actuality of things and not getting caught in thinking and in the storms of emotion that occlude our vision. Have you ever gotten angry and uh, lost your mind? Well, then you're lucky you're not in prison because most of the people in prison are in prison because they lost their minds at a certain point. And most of them are there, as Harville pointed out, because they weren't loved as children. I mean, the, the environment. I mean, the level of child abuse in people who are imprisoned in this country is, you know, at about the 90% level. Okay, so this is the heritage. This is the, this is the uh, lineage, so to speak, that we're working with in our society. And how do we embody something clearer? So this book, Old Age, I think would be tremendously useful for you to read, but you have to read it with your heart. The work that I do is called mindfulness-based stress reduction. It's often spoken of as the heart of Buddhist meditation. But you need to know, when you hear the word mindfulness, that the, in all Asian languages, the word for mind and the word for heart are the same word. So if you're not hearing heartfulness, you're not understanding it, even as a concept. And then once you understand it as a concept, you have to throw it out. Because it's not about the concept. It's about, the, it's about sentience. It's about paying attention. It's about being in the present moment. It's about living your life as if it really mattered, which means letting go of all of this occluding, conceptual stuff that is running through our minds perpetually. And then when you sit down to meditate, how many of you have a regular meditation practice, just out of curiosity? Okay. So you all know. And how many of you used to, but you gave it up because it's just too boring to watch your own mind? Yeah. Or anxiety-producing, Yes. Or you were into it when Leonard Cohn was young, but it lost its allure. Okay, well, saying it lost its allure is like saying you've lost your allure. Because it's, not a, it's about befriending yourself. It's not about being a good meditator or having some knock-your-socks-off spiritual experience that then you can put in your CV as part of the story of me. I don't know if you realize it, but I'm enlightened. I'm beyond pain, <laughs> suffering. 
Yeah, I would believe all of that except for one sneaky little crummy thing, and that is the personal pronoun that somehow snuck in so that you want to claim it. The other book is called... What is it called? Uh, Aging with Grace by uh, David Snowden. And this is about... Aging with Grace is actually a, probably a tr- triple entendre because Grace is the name of... This is about the famous nun study of aging, okay? Uh, which how many of you have not heard of the nun study? It says, if you're interested in aging, you've got to read this study. I mean, this is extraordinary stuff that was first published in the mid-'90s, but, you know, it's ongoing, a database of people who are all almost all alike in terms of their level of education, the kind of lives they lead, the spiritual practice, everything. Uh, and they wrote autobiographies when they were young, so they've got incredible records going back to their early years about these nuns in this particular order. Um, and, and David Snowden decided to study them, and he's got all sorts of personal connections with them because you know his family was Catholic, and he used to drive around in the car with these nuns in these full habits when he was like five years old and now he's an epidemiologist researcher and he's like back with the nuns and they're teaching him incredible things about longevity and about Alzheimer's and who gets it and who doesn't and do you know what the core finding is? The core finding because they found the like mother load, they found the Rosetta Stone of, um, for epidemiology research and that is Uh, early autobiographies written about their lives when they were in their early 20s. And what they did was they analyzed them linguistically for a number of different uh, elements that have to do with the structure and the use of words and actually the expression of emotion. And they found some just totally unbelievable things like what these women wrote in their early 20s predicted whether they would get Alzheimer's in their 60 years later. Okay, just what they wrote, predicted at the 80 to 90% level. Okay, and this is the distinction between the ones that did and the ones that didn't. And this is not Alzheimer's-like because you're looking at dementia. This is, you're looking at everything, including these nuns actually agreed to, virtually all of them, donate their brains once they died to be studied in the laboratory because you can't make a full diagnosis of Alzheimer without actually dissecting the brain. And you see these plaques and these tangles that are characteristic of it, and they just take over the parts of the brain that have to do with memory, the hippocampus, the neocortex, the frontal cortex, and and you can just see that your brain is... It's like, but you don't, but you can't see it until the person dies. It doesn't even show up on fMRIs or PET scans or anything like that. And by the way, just to say, I spent eight years watching this happen to my father, who was uh, uh, oh, a samurai scientist is the way I usually describe it. A professor in four different departments at Columbia University, won every conceivable honor in his field except the Nobel Prize. Uh, and uh, who wound up for about 10 years not even being able to understand his work. And I wrote about it in a chapter in Coming to Our Senses uh, because it taught me a lot to, to be in relationship to somebody who's losing their mind and at the same time in some way not losing their heart. Maybe the heart even like became more to the fore. Uh, and this... So, sort of very, very poignant, and a lot of us are dealing with that with parents nowadays, or fear it for ourselves. Well, what, the, what is the determining factor in the nun study, where you've got a very homogeneous population, which is exactly what you want to get really good answers in science, in this kind of uh, way of uh, doing science, is what they call idea density. When the writings had a high number of ideas in a relatively small number of words, then that protected you for Alzheimer's 60 years down the pike, okay? As opposed to low idea density, where you just say, like, the facts, ma'am, nothing but the facts, and, you know, sort of like that. At an 80 to 90% predict level of predictability, 
Okay? So that translates, and he talks about this in the book, even the researchers, you know, I mean, it's like, just because you're a researcher doesn't mean you're not scared of dying or growing older. And it's like, and people said, the guy who did the brain dissection said, what does this mean for, for my children? What should I have done with them? And the linguist who worked with him said, well, did you read to them? And, uh, and, and he said, oh, we read to them every night. He said, well, that's it. You don't need to play them Mozart. You don't need to give them like uh, computer learning games. and stuff like that. You read to them and you craft a love for the language, for words, for concepts and how they're held. Uh, then that in itself, in some sense, predisposes the brain. And by the way, starting in childhood, because they find when they do autopsies that people in their 20s, some of them have these plaques and tangles. And they think it's just like a 50-year kind of slow latency before you reach so much tangled, plaqued brain material in the, in the cortex and in the hippocampus and the other centers of the brain that you know, it just overloads the system and you start to lose it. But another interesting finding of this study is that when they did the autopsies, if people had strokes, they were much more likely to have dementia. There were a lot of people who looked, when they died, like they had Alzheimer's when you looked at the brain, but they didn't have dementia. They didn't have any symptoms of Alzheimer's. They had the plaques and they had the strokes, but they didn't, I mean, they had the plaques and they had the tangles, but they didn't have the strokes. So what does that say? That says, well, the first thing you do is reduce the risk factor for stroke, and that's something we know how to do. Okay? You lower your blood pressure. You lower cholesterol. You exercise. You do all sorts of things. You lose some weight okay, without becoming obsessed about weight. So there are a lot of different extremely promising things that are going on that are saying that we can have some say in how we grow into our later years with the emphasis on grow and with the emphasis on health and healing and well-being. But that would include also how we grow in our hearts in relationship to ourselves, to the air, to the light, to the sounds, to the person you sleep next to if you're sleeping next to somebody, to your children, to your parents, to the planet. And that requires tending. It requires attending. It requires some tension. Thank you. Um, And that's what the work of mindfulness is. It's like tending the garden, befriending your own experience, and getting out of your own way. This turns out to sound really simple. Wow, of course. Why the hell didn't I hear that, learn, understand that years ago? I would, of course I'd meditate if it was just about, you know, being in the present moment, non-judgmentally, which means... By the way, it doesn't mean you're not going to have any judgments. You're going to have millions of judgments, billions of judgments. Those of you who raised your hands and said you were meditating, like most of it is watching how mindless you are, isn't it? There goes another thought and another thought and another thought. And it's like, you know, so we're continually diverting ourselves, distracting ourselves. We don't need a television. We've got more channels going on in there than 500 channels on the big flat screen. And it's more interesting, more hysterical. If you don't take it personally, it can actually really be liberating. Absolutely liberating. So the key is not take it personally. What if we could live in awareness and use the personal pronouns because, you know, who else is going to put your pants on for you in the morning if you can't, oh, I can't say I anymore, you know. It's like, I'm not saying that. No, your money in your bank account is still your money, but that's on a relative scale. On a bigger scale, it's like, you know, we're much bigger than we think. That's the trouble with thinking is it tends to be limiting. And we have the potential to be much bigger, to be as big as what a human being actually is and to grow into it in a way that uh, is insanely beautiful. Uh, because the nurses study, I mean, the, the, uh, the uh, nun study emphasized uh, idea density and... Um, and language so much, and the development and use of language to cultivate this. Uh, See, that says that poetry may have important medical implications. Because what is more idea-dense than poems? That's why we don't like poetry. It's too dense. I can't even get into it. I can't get into the poem. 
I can't even hear it. Well, that's not the only thing you can't hear or get into. I mean, have you ever had the person you love most in the world and, and uh, you know, someone close to you at least say, um, you never listen to me? Yeah, we can hear and not hear. We can see and not see. We can touch and be totally out of touch. We can eat and have no idea what we're tasting because we're so out of touch. So coming to our senses, it may not be a luxury anymore, folks. It's like maybe the absolute necessity if we are going to wake up in this lifetime, and this lifetime is only this moment because the next moment is not guaranteed. But if you take care of the present moment, the future is already different because you've shown up for this. It means you've got a whole different way to present is pregnant with possibilities. And as soon as you align yourself with this moment, then uh, things unfold that before wouldn't, were not seen. We're not heard. All of a sudden you start hearing, you start feeling, you start being able to relate and not be scared by pain, by suffering, by the mind that says, oh, you're going to die. Or this is killing me. This is hurting too much. We teach our pain patients that say, is it true that it's killing me? And the answer is almost invariably, no, it's not killing me now, but what about if it keeps up? And they say, well, how about just living in now? Let, if it keeps up, take care of itself. And people rotate in consciousness. They transform. We've done studies, published studies. Mindfulness can influence healing. The rate of healing. People with um, psoriasis, which is an uncontrolled cell proliferation. It's not exactly cancer. It's not like, uh, but it's got kissing cousin genes to basal cell carcinoma. So a few poems to end because I'd like to, we use a lot of poetry in mindfulness-based stress reduction because the poets do a certain kind of work same as the meditators and it drops deeply into something that uh, I've been pointing to all evening and you'll read in the nurse's book, I mean, I keep saying nurses, the nun study and also in old age. Uh, or in Shakespeare, or in Odysseus. And I talk some about the Odysseus piece in Coming to Our Senses because it's about uh, the prophecy of a second journey of Odysseus, which doesn't come at the end, it comes in the middle, through a blind seer named Tiresias at the borders of hell, when he's at the borders of hell. Now, a blind seer, you know, when you're talking about the senses, what is a blind seer? It's like we can see and we don't see anything. Odysseus could see and he couldn't see anything. And it took the whole 10 years of his journey to get home because he was so mindless and so arrogant. And then it predicts another journey, the journey of old age. Not out to sea again. Whoopee with the boys. Let's kind of rape and pillage and burn some more. But actually an interior journey, into the interior, carrying an oar until people ask you, They've never seen the sea, they've never seen an oar. What is that winnowing fan you're carrying on your shoulder? Winnowing fan is the sort of the clarity of mindfulness, the discernment that separates the wheat from the chaff, that knows and knows that it knows, that intuitive knowing that rests in our hearts all the time. It's not something you have to get. It's something you have to just say, let the clouds uh, dispel themselves so the sun, the luminosity can be here. Rilke, the great German poet, said... (coughs) Love and death are the great gifts that are given to us. Mostly, they're passed on, unopened. Hmm? T.S. Eliot said, I love these lines, Oh, dark, 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 they all go into the dark. The vacant interstellar spaces, the vacant into the vacant, the captains, merchants, bankers, eminent men of letters, the generous patrons of the art. In other words, every single person that's ever been alive on the planet goes into the dark. The statesmen, the rulers, the big shots. The distinguished civil servants. Chairmen of many committees. Industrial lords and petty contractors. All go into the dark. And the dark, the sun, and dark, the sun, the moon, and the stock exchange gazette, the directory of directors, and the cold sense and lost motive of action... And we all go with them. And we all go with them. So no one escapes. Well, okay, instead of complaining about it or trying to figure out once and for all how we can like, be the only thing in the universe that doesn't evolve and grow and, 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 uh, and ultimately uh, move into old age and, and, and die to give birth to something else, uh, 
What if we could just embrace this? It might teach us everything that everybody on this planet who's ever dropped in and started to pay attention knows. And that is profoundly healing at the level of the body, at the level of the heart, at the level of the mind, at the level of the family, at the level of the planet. You could say, in terms of the planet, that the human species, when it is not paying attention, when it is uh, sort of in its most unexamined mind, after Aristotle, who said the unexamined life is not live, worth living, in the terms of the unexamined mind, the human species is like um, the autoimmune disease of the planet Earth. It's both the agent of the disease and the victim of it because we don't recognize how much we don't know and we think we know and then we go and we do this. And we don't get the feedback back in time, perhaps, but maybe we will because, because I think we are waking up on this planet. I have every reason to be incredibly optimistic. There's so much beauty. There's so much goodness. There's so much life. There's so much uh, luminosity. And we have to take responsibility for it individually and not think, oh, someone else is going to come along and fix it all, make it all better. And that's like a kind of rising tide of mindfulness. Imagine a mindful politics. Imagine a mindful economics. Imagine a mindful uh, notion of defense and stability so that we saw war as, you know, and sort of these, these... perpetual sort of forms of violence that we engage in as kind of like a disease. And we outlawed it. And it had to be some other kind of way of doing things. That is possible. We know enough to do that. So we are called this Homo sapiens sapiens, the species that knows and knows that it knows. And I think it's time we lived up to our name. So I want to thank you, really, for coming to this conference. Omega is a jewel on this planet. I've been working with Omega for many, many years. Uh, I want to thank you for coming to this conference. I want to thank you for uh, coming to this talk. I want to, in some sense, um, invite you, if anything that I've said here this morning has touched you in any way, to sort of water those seeds of it in the soil of what you already know, who you already are, your own beauty, intrinsic beauty, no matter what your circumstances, no matter what your situation, and, and in some sense dive more deeply into this adventure. And here's a poem to finish, very brief poem to finish, by Derek Walcott, Nobel laureate uh, from the island of St. Lucia, Afro-Caribbean, uh, uh, called Love After Love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door. You'll greet yourself arriving at your own door. Maybe it's at this conference. Who knows? Who knows why you came to this conference, really? Watch out, because it's going to be over, too, and then it'll just be that nice memory of an Omega conference, and like you'll have heard all these people speak, or you'll have done this or done that, met all these people, but you may still not have found what you're looking for, because it ain't in me or Andy or anybody else, or in some vitamin pill or uh, even an Omega-3 fatty acid. (laughs) Not that I don't take them. The time will come when with elation you'll greet yourself arriving at your own door. At your own door. In your own mirror. And each will smile at the other's welcome. Wrinkles and everything. That's me interjecting. Each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to yourself. To the stranger who has loved you all your life who you have ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes, all that past. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Sit. You have to understand what that means, sit. 
feast on your life. We could call that ageless for now. Thank you, folks. This has been a presentation of Omega Institute for Holistic Studies. Visit us online at eomega.org.